The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about where did our Norman Rockwell childhood go? I feel like I should be singing that, where did all, (laughs) but I won't, I won't. Uh, Society is on a runaway train, primarily with technology, but also with eruptions of violence all over the world, problems with the economy all over the world, uh, changes in our society, just all kinds of changes. And it is hard enough for adults to accommodate these changes and to uh, stay sane and to keep pursuing their dreams. But little kids are casualties of our runaway train, of this so-called progress that we're making. And uh, as hard as it is for adults to, to make these changes and to pretend that we're all happy about it, it's so much harder for kids because um, they, childhood is a time when we need stability, nurturing, um, all those kinds of good things. And if you look back over the years, over the decades, uh, our country, the world, but let's just talk about our country for right now, America, um, has, has really gone from a, time, a Norman Rockwell time um, yes, I know it's, you know, it's never, the looking back on the past sometimes seems rosier than it was and so on, but still, uh, when you look at the television shows that were on, the radio shows, um, the things that, that families did together, and of course, one of the uh, earmarks of these more <laughs> um, nurturing Norman Rockwell times is baseball. Kids playing baseball, kids playing in the street, handball, baseball. I grew up in New York, so it was handball. But all kinds of sports, daddies being coaches, um, those were the kinds of stuff that, uh, that past decades were made of. Not to say that there isn't Little League today and that kids aren't playing baseball today, of course. But in the context of society, it just ain't the same for one thing, um, so many more families are fatherless, and there are therefore so many fewer fathers who are coaches, uh, that kind of thing. And also, there are so many more latchkey kids and who aren't getting a chance to play with other kids, not to mention, not to mention technology with kids going to bed with their smartphones. All of these kinds of things are, I don't think... Um, Certainly not making this a good time for kids, and really uh, we have to question just how much of it is progress. Well, my guest today is actually, uh, he, he has a, he's an award-winning journalist, for one thing, with over 40 years in radio, media, and as a writer. Um, he is and has been for quite a while on KNX 1070, the CBS station in L.A., um, he has written several books, including novels such as Al Kabul, Homegrown Terrorist. He was actually on this show, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I guess it was, with talking about his book, uh, Lancer, Hero of the West, and about the role of Westerns in our society. And um, also he's written screenplays, 
And as a reporter, he's covered every kind of story, from U.S. presidents to Hollywood entertainment and sports. He's been a national correspondent with the UPI radio network to local radio stations all over the country, including, as I said, the L.A. market. And he is originally a Pittsburgh native and diehard Steelers, Pirates, and Penguins fan. Um, the reason what we're going to be talking about today is um, two of his books. Um, one, they go from one extreme to the other. So it's this timeline idea. It's Norman Rockwell is his book, Tales of My Baseball Youth, A Child of the 60s. And at the other extreme, looking at today's uh, society and what kids are, are exposed to today, is Al Kabul, Homegrown Terrorist, which is a novel um, as compared to Tales of My Baseball Youth, which is more of a memoir. Both of them, both of them kept me up last night. So if I stop making sense or um, reaching for words, you will know it's because I couldn't put, I had read, I had read Tales of My Baseball Youth already, and then started reading Al Kabul, and I could not put it down. So that's that's where we are, folks. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. Always a pleasure to be with you. You know that. Well, let's start with. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I w- let's start with what you um, what you think of what I just said about our Norman, our lost Norman Rockwell youth. I think you're right on the money uh, there. It was a different time. Uh, the Tales of My Baseball Youth takes place primarily in the 60s, and we had our own issues then. Of course, we had the uh, Vietnam War. We had the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you name it, we had it. We had uh, everything was, our world was being turned upside down, much like it is today, although today it's much more subtle and much more rapid than it was back then, and we didn't have the technology to get stuff to us as quickly as possible, although it was the first time in American history and world history when television brought war, real war, into our homes, which you can relate that to today with today's technology of smartphones and Twitter and uh, wars being created and uh, the, uh, the Arab Spring and everything such as that being taken over by the Internet, whether it was Twitter or whether it was Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever, all those tools, electronic tools being used to sort of parallel what was happening in the 60s. Well, you know, I mean, certainly um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, there, there were things in the 60s that were terrifying at the time, but, but I think we've taken it up a notch. I mean, I guess, I don't know, I think the, the one difference is that these were uh, sort of circumscribed, you know, they, they lasted for a time, but now, ever since 9-11, I mean, terrorism seems to have been, uh, is lingering like a dark cloud. I mean, it even started before 9-11, but 9-11 was when we became more aware of what was really going mm-hmm. on, and it's been a lingering cloud, whereas in earlier years, there would be crises, but they would come and go. Well, let me put it this way. I remember sitting... Uh, at home and uh, watching on television John Kennedy's speech, President Kennedy's speech about the Cuban Missile Crisis and where we stood. I remember it very vividly sitting there in front of a black and white television with my father and my mother. And as I looked at that in 1962, uh, afterwards I asked my father, uh, I said, are we going to build a bomb shelter? And he said, a lot of people, you're going to see a lot of bomb shelters going up now after this. And we certainly, we didn't build one, but we know people that did. And today, and, and when the Cuban Missile Crisis was over, it was over. You know, there was a finite end to it, just as you mentioned. Today, mm-hmm. we have the same thing where we have terrorism, we have presidents talking about terrorism. Of course, we have talking heads constantly on television, uh, bantering back and forth, uh, pro, con, uh, left, right, and everything else that takes the thing extended out where it's more on our minds and it's always there in front of us. You can't get away from it. And on top of that, it is always there because you never know. You have to, uh, there, there's no finite uh, enemy. There's no finite war that we can say, okay, if we defeat this battle, we win this mm-hmm. battle, we've won a war or at least maybe we haven't won the war, but at least 
this battle is over. With mm-hmm. today's world, what we have, it's ongoing, it's constant, it never stops, and you have to constantly be vigilant about even where you're at and you're surrounded. And back then, it wasn't that way. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk about um, your, uh, let's talk about the first book, I mean, first in terms of today, not, Tales not of necessarily. Tales sure. um, Tales of My Baseball Youth. First of all, um, what, okay, what, well, Bob is a very um, prolific writer. The, this is, uh, this is getting to be quite a library. Um, but what particularly made you sit down, decide to sit down one particular day and, and write this? Well, I've always been asked by either my kids or my wife or, or even friends because of my long career in radio and the stories that I've covered and news that I've covered to sit down and put down on paper my memoirs. And I have written a script uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a feature film script that, that talked about getting my first job in radio when I was 18 years old. So that was a kind of slice of it. And I wanted, I've never ever decided that I wanted to write um, a book or a screenplay that covered my entire life because I think the focus on the entire life is just too much and would probably bore people to tears. Now, if I take slices of that, and that's what Tales of My Baseball Youth is, uh, because it focuses on the 60s. As a baseball fan and a kid who only wanted to grow up playing baseball, which I described in the book as growing up and playing baseball for my home team, Pittsburgh Pirates, I wanted to tell the stories that were relationship stories. And that's what this book is. It's a book about relationships between kids and kids, kids and parents, kids and teachers, kids and coaches, kids and friends, kids and brothers and sisters, all with a a baseball theme. In other words, the common thread through all 15 chapters is baseball. And whether that baseball is Major League Baseball or Little League Baseball, and the cover I chose for the book is my 12-year-old Little League photo, and uh, it's funny because I've had several people contact me on Facebook saying, I took my Little League photo in the same spot you did, and I can't find it. <laughs> um, and on the back, I have my, my uh, 12th, uh, one, uh, my senior Little League uh, team photo on the back and uh, some of the kids that were there. And I just wanted to tell the story um, of my feelings and my relationships growing up in a select time period and with a baseball theme. It just kind of happened. Uh, I, I, I didn't, I, it's probably the only book that I wrote, have ever written, uh, that I said, I don't really care if I sell a copy. I got to uh-huh. get it out there. I got to tell the story and uh-huh. I want to get it down on paper and I want to make sure that, I want to make sure of something happening which has happened. Everybody who has read the book and has gotten back to me has said the exact same thing. Which they is? relate. Which is they what? relate. They relate. Uh-huh. And a friend of mine in Scotland uh, who reviewed it uh, said very simply, he said, I grew up thousands of miles away from where Bob Real did. I didn't play baseball growing up. I played soccer and rugby. And I can tell the same stories. It brought uh-huh. back those memories and those relationships. Well, let's, let's take it from the beginning. When, I mean, what um, made you... Become, as a little boy, um, become interested in baseball? I mean, like, why baseball and not soccer, or why baseball and not stamp collecting? <laughs> well, I tried stamp collecting, and it bored me to tears. <laughs> but I, I collected baseball cards. I mean, I guess what really got me into baseball was, first of all, my, my father and all his brothers, uh, had, uh, there were seven boys and four girls in the family, and they all played baseball. They had a baseball team, you know, and I grew up playing baseball in the 30s and 40s. And, and uh, my brother played, and all my cousins and everybody in the neighborhood played. So that, that was part of it. But I always, I loved competition. I, I loved to compete. And I guess on my sixth birthday in 1959, when I was allowed to go pick out my first present on my own, my mom took me to the local Woolworths, and I bought a pack of uh, baseball cards because I had never had any myself. 
that kind of got me hooked. I loved looking at the cards. I, I loved reading about them. I love statistics. I, I learned in later years that uh, I'm very good at math, but I love, love, love statistics. I mean, and baseball is statistics. You know, I, I would get anything I could to read. I would read any baseball. Elementary school, we would go to the library and we would have to check out two books for this two weeks. I always pick baseball books or a Civil War book, if that was the other thing, because I'm, another, I'm a Civil War book as well. And, but it was always a baseball book. And I, I liked football, but, you know, football wasn't that personal relationship that you have with baseball players. You can't see their faces, you know, when mm. they're playing. Mm. They're That's a good point. Uniforms. And yeah. in baseball, you see their faces. In basketball, we didn't have a basketball team in Pittsburgh. Never did, except for the American Basketball Association and the ABL, which were like one or two years uh, about. Uh, we never had an NBA team, and so I couldn't relate to that because I always related to my local teams, and I love the Pirates. I love the Steelers and Penguins and, and Penn State and, and Pitt, and uh, I just grew up with that, and it was sort of, I grew up in an ethnic Italian family in an Italian neighborhood, and everybody played baseball, and I, was <laughs> I just fell in love with it. And so your, your dream, really, like if people asked you what you wanted to be when you were a little, six years old or eight years old, um, or or a little older, um, you would say that you wanted to be a Pittsburgh Pirate. Yes. I wanted to play second base uh, following my hero, Bill Nazarowski, uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates. By a matter of fact, uh, one of my teachers, Mrs. Dunn, uh, we had an assignment to uh, tell what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I think it was the fifth grade or sixth, might have been the sixth grade. And I wrote that I wanted to graduate high school, fly to Florida, go to the Pittsburgh Pirates spring training camp, try out, get signed, and become a major league player after I had a minor league career. And she looked at it and she said, um, what's your backup? And I said, what do you mean, what, what's a backup? She goes, well, if you can't play baseball, what are you doing? And I said, well, I said, I'm playing baseball. And she goes, well, what if you can't play baseball? And I said, okay, what, what, what should I do? And I thought, I thought, I said, well, I'd want to stay close to baseball, which is where the broadcasting career came in. And I did do some play-by-play and I've done uh, quite a bit of sports and yeah. covered a lot of sporting events. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's how that all came about. Yes, I thought that was so fascinating, the fact that, um, I mean, that's how you wound up in, in radio, in broadcasting, that um, it was really to be close to baseball. Once you, once you came to realize that you were going to have to have a backup, that that's how yeah. that came about. And I think that, uh, you know, that's not how most people get into broadcasting, but I thought that that's was really true. fascinating. <laughs> well, we need, we need to take, that's a pretty good backup. <laughs> we need to take a break. My guest is Bob Brill. The book that we're talking about that uh, he wrote is called Tales of My Baseball Youth. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. 
Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about where did our Norman Rockwell childhood go? And uh, indeed, that is a question to ask. And actually, uh, not just for the hell of it, but to see whether there are some things we can do to bring back some of those warm, fuzzy times and not just uh, stay on this runaway train that we're on. Um, My guest is Bob Brill. We're talking about his book, Tales of My Baseball Youth, A Child of the Sixties. And yes, um, Bob, one of the things that I I liked about this book was, and you you talk really, um, uh, you sort of bare your soul, not only about the love of baseball and, and, uh, you know, you sort of eat and sleep um, baseball with the baseball cards and the looking at the scores on the weekends and the, listening to the games and all of that and of course playing for all the, for so many different teams at once um, but mainly the relationships like how you know it wasn't just um, did I get to first base or second base but it was about all the other players and then the coaches and then your father and um, you know it wasn't such a simple thing as, as hitting a ball no, it wasn't. <laughs> One of the, um, I, I dedicated the book to my best friend growing up, who was my next-door neighbor, and Marty Aproyan. And Marty and I probably played between tabletop board games, uh, which was Stratomatic Baseball, backyard wiffle ball one-on-one, over the line at the park, and an actual competition in leagues that we played in where we played against each other. I would probably say we probably played Upwards of 100,000 games of some sort uh, when it mm-hmm. came to baseball. And um, we lost touch with each other for a number of years for a number of reasons. And, uh, we just recently, over the last couple of years, re-cemented our relationship. And it, it, it's wonderful to, uh, to hear back from guys and girls, too, who grew up in the same schools or leagues or things like that. Uh, you know we're going to buy the book. I mean, I knew I was going to sell books to those people because – they might be in it, then they, you know, we have a common bond. And uh, sure enough, uh, a lot of people have uh, come to me and said, you know, I, you brought back so many memories. I, hey, I remember this person. There's uh, one particular teacher in the book, uh, Mrs. Backus, who I'd love to hear from if she's out there. I tried to find her if she's still around, and I don't know that she is, but I've not had any luck. Uh, but she was, uh, uh, well, let's put it this way. The other guys in the class, in my fourth grade class, who had contacted me, fifth grade class, I'm sorry, who had contacted me uh, after reading the book, said, we all have the same feeling. Mrs. Backus was a hottie. <laughs> she, she had, she had the, the thing where she would, uh, while she was lecturing, for some reason, she would always sit on the desks of the kids who were up front. And, of course, mine didn't begin with a B, so where was I? I was right up front. And she would sit on the desk probably eight, ten inches away from where my hands had to be. And it was really kind of, it, it, you know, it, you got some young boys growing up, hormones going crazy. And it's like, I don't remember anything she taught me at all. You know? <laughs> and I found out that a lot of other kids in the class who have read the book since then have said the exact same thing. Uh-huh. I had lunch, I had dinner with one of them not too long ago. And he goes, oh, man, I do remember uh, her. And... But, you know, there were other teachers. Um, I had a teacher named Mrs. Bobo, who we always thought her name was a clown, but who was just, she must have been a billion years old when she was teaching us. And I know she's long past now. Um, but, uh, and there was a couple other teachers who were probably past as well, who had so much uh, uh, impact on uh, young boys growing up, and young girls too, I mean, uh, be equal about that. But who had an impact on us for one reason or another that I talked about it in the book because those were relationships that happened while baseball was a theme, there were other things going on at the same time. And, you know, the relationship with my father and my coaches, whether it was good or bad, and, of course, my brother, who uh, was an idol of mine to, to some degree. Uh, he's uh, uh, 12 years older than I am, and he played when he was pretty much done playing when I was starting to play. And we had uh, the first chapter of the book goes to a relationship that rekindled when he went with me to Cooperstown just uh, not that many years ago, uh, less than 20 years ago. And we had probably 
the best time that we've ever had together. Uh, because he was so much older than me, he kind of left home before I kind of, well, when I needed a brother the most, he kind of he went into the Army and, and he got married and went off on his own. So we didn't have that relationship growing up as much as we'd like to have had, and it developed in much, much later years. Well, yeah, that's a very sweet chapter. Um, you start with that in the book because, uh, you know, it kind of demonstrates just how devoted you were to baseball, and you talk about how um, you go, I, 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 never, I, I knew about Cooperstown, who, the Hall of Fame and all of that, Baseball Hall of Fame, but um, you, the way you describe going around, collecting the autographs and so on, that was really interesting. Um, you know, even but when you were just talking about school and so on, you know, even that, uh, the way you talked about it, you could kind of see like it's not like it's not like teachers today, really. I mean, yes, there are some wonderful teachers today. Unfortunately, most of them, if they're in the public school system, get burnt out because they have so many kids in the class. Right, uh, but you know, true. I could kind of see the green blackboard <laughs> or the black blackboard, <laughs> and um, and you know, when teachers would sit on the desk, you know, what I mean, I mean it's, it's like even that had um, a Norman Rockwell feel to it when you think about what it's like today. It certainly did, you know, and I I have to kind of admit, I I felt looking back, I lived kind of a blessed childhood. Uh, I had two parents who were there and they were there till the end and I had a brother and sister who were um, older than me that uh, could mentor me even though I didn't want to be mentored and because I, I was a bit of a rebel I was the baby I and realistically my brother and sister were really from a different generation my brother was born in 1941 my sister was born in 42 and 11 years later I came along and I know for a fact I was a loops child you know my mother uh, later told my first wife that, um, how'd she put it? She said, I was a good Catholic and we went on vacation. And I know the time of year because my dad always used to go on vacation at the same place in September over Labor Day weekend. said, we went on vacation and I forgot my calendar. And you know how those Italian men are on vacation. Those are direct <laughs> words from my mother. So uh, I, I actually could figure out the exact date I was conceived if that it's kind of bizarre to think about, but um, I, I did. I, I grew up in a blessed family, a blessed childhood. Uh, my dad was a work at Uh He never made more than eight hundred dollars a month in his entire life, you know. But when he was young, he was uh, he used to promote dances and uh, did all sorts of things and and to make extra money, sold Christmas trees in the winter. He's a home delivery milkman. I mean, which we don't really even have today anymore. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She only went to the sixth grade and failed once. Uh, so she never even had a high school education. So uh, uh-huh. I, I grew up with loving parents who uh, loved me, and I came along at a time after my brother and sister during the baby boom era that, you know, things were good in America in the 50s and the 60s, you know, to a point. I mean, they weren't good for everybody. You know, we, we like to think that we lived in a this wonderful time of everything was good and, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm a liberal, and I, I'm a Democrat, and I know that for a fact that, you know, we, we talk about those days. And my black brothers and sisters uh, out there, you know, the 50s was not the good old days, you know. So, mm-hmm. And I, I grew up, um, I'm white, but I grew up in, uh, I didn't grow up white bread, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I had a lot of black friends, especially in junior high and high school, and, and uh, we, we, we hung out together. And there was never an issue for us. Yes, you know, even on your yeah. team, the picture that you have yeah. in the back of the book was um, integrated. You know, but yes, that was part of it, too. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that is missing um, and that I want to mention later on in terms of things that we can fix. But, you know, this two-parent family is sort of, you know, that's, that's the cornerstone of Norman Rockwell childhoods. And that's exactly. the main thing that is missing today. Um, and that is really, if there was anything to change, that is really one of the things that needs to be changed. And I guess I'll mention it now while we're talking about it. Um, you know, t- there's a statistic that the Monday after the holidays, after the Christmas and New Year's holidays, so it would technically be yesterday, but um, because yesterday was New Year's Day observed, that might push it up to the, to the next Monday. But this is the time. This week is the time when there are the greatest number of divorce 
filings after the holidays. And when people decide to make, uh, in my opinion, it has to do with people deciding to make a New Year's resolution of dumping their spouse. Now, not to say that there aren't reasons, that legitimate reasons, why one might um, want to do that or should do that, like if a spouse is being uh, physically abusive or um, has an addiction and does not refuses to get help year after year. But if a family has, if a couple has children, then they owe it to their children to at least be in therapy for a year before deciding to go through with it. So, and it's just, it just, but really, that's one. This is one of my pet peeves. And anytime you know couples in, that are in therapy or or even individuals um, ask me about this or saying, "Oh, I'm not happy with my husband um, because of this and this," but you know, um, really, a lot of times, once people get divorced, they they regret it. And really, if they had gone to therapy for a year, they might well have been able to work it out. But what, what people don't realize is the damage that they're doing to their kids. And, and that's the, the number one thing for why there aren't uh, Norman Rockwell childhoods today. But let's, <laughs> let's, let's go on from this. I want to get, have a, I don't want too much, I want to be able to have time for your second book, El Al Kabul, Homegrown Terrorist. Now, you uh, wrote yes. this in 2012? Yes. yes. I mean, that's the date that it was published, so okay. Right. Um, so it was, of course, after after nine eleven, um, but but so four years ago. I mean, um, what what made all your books are so different? What made you? Uh, this is a very long book. Ergo, I was up all night. Right. <laughs> um, it's probably the it's the it's probably the longest of uh, any. I know it's the longest of any of my novels. Uh, matter of fact, uh-huh. I was. Uh, when you said you wanted to talk about that, I was looking at it today, and I was just refreshing myself with it because it's like almost 300 pages. And um, it, it's uh, what I was the impetus do, for that? I wanted to do something looking down the road from 9/11. Uh, you know, we always in our culture observe anniversaries, and like for instance, 2017 is the 25th anniversary of the L.A. riots, and I think mm. you know, as, uh, as, um, we've talked about this before, I was attacked at Florence and Normandy during the L.A. riots and was put out of commission while covering that as a reporter. So I turns out I, I knew that during the 25th anniversary, I'd get some calls, and sure enough, I did, and there's a few TV shows, there's going to be documentaries uh, and coming up in the spring on the anniversary of the riots that uh, I'll be a part of. Um, but so I always do that, you know, we look at anniversaries and being a news, you know, a news person, we look at these all the time. And I, I wondered what the world would be like 25 years after 9-11. And so what I did was I set this book uh, 25 years past 9-11, 25 years in the future from 9-11. And with all the talk about homegrown terrorists and where we're going with that, I thought, you know, that might be something that, uh, would be something I would want to write about. And so I started looking at it, and I had to create a world that not only I knew, but a world I didn't know. And I didn't know how the world was going, going to be 25 years later. But I, I thought of the technology, I didn't think it would be a whole lot different. And, you know, I mean, good stories are good stories. You know, people, people make good stories. Uh, you know, drama, conflict makes good stories, and that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. And I came up with the idea of, okay, how do, how do we get to a point where homegrown terrorists come up and become powerful? And why would they become powerful when and it comes to this one? The, the terrorists of this book are born in the United States, the descendants of Afghanistan, and the tragedies that happened go with the two wars we fought there. And I put those people 25 years in the future, college kids who graduated with high honors, came from money, and were engineers, and decided to take up the mantle that their parents really wouldn't want them to take, but their grandparents may. And that was the jihad. And also, at the same time, to honor their hero, who was Osama bin Laden. And that's where the book takes place, and how that all unfolds, and the goal of these 
individual terrorists uh, is more than maybe what we might expect. But it's certainly feasible. Uh, I think everything in the book is certainly feasible, and I've had uh, reviewers say the exact same thing, is that where would we be 25 years after uh, 9-11, and have we learned the lessons that led us up to 9-11? Well, of course, we never learn all the lessons. We repeat the mistakes of history, and we do that quite often. And that's where I kind of put this book in the text of uh, an FBI hunt and chase an elite team chasing down the would-be terrorists. Yes, but you know what? What I liked about this was that you make there. There are two. Um, I, I, I will be careful to not give too much of the story away, but um, I think it's okay to say <laughs> that the um, two main, the two lead characters, the two terrorists, uh, right. are college buddies, and mm-hmm. um, and very relatable. I mean, you you certainly. Um, I mean, we all know people like, well, <laughs> well, right. not necessarily who have these nefarious plans, right. but I mean, as far as uh, keeping that, other than, you know, keeping that hidden, and yes, they have, um, they have no conscience, no remorse, um, they're, they think nothing of, of killing one person, a uh, very personal kind of killing, and killing 150 people uh, with an airplane, but, um, uh, it is. It is very. So it does seem like it is very. Uh, it could have happened already, and it could happen in our in the near future. Um, has anybody asked you? And I, well, I'll. Uh, did you, Did you ever worry along the way that uh, somebody might read this and think of it as a great plan and do a copycat? Oh sure. Uh, I, I definitely thought that, but as a journalist, I, I had to brush that off and say anything that you write could do that, whether right. it's uh, something as, as far as this type of book or whether, you know, it, it's on the Internet or, uh, you know, anybody can take anything. I mean, you look at a current movie and you see that happening, too, and, and you can't fear that. You've got to write what you're going to write and tell the story that you're going to store, uh, tell uh, and let the chips fall where they may. The one thing I did do with this book that I had never done before was I went and asked two Muslim uh, researchers and uh, uh, imams, and uh, I went to um, professors of Muslim uh, uh, religious uh, history and and religion, and I asked them, I said, okay, I'm going to send you the rough draft of this book, and I want you to tell me if I've taken anything out of context, number one, uh-huh. number two, if I've done misquoted or mis, uh, represent, misrepresented anything, and is there something in there that might cause me to have a fear of retribution, because I don't want someone to go all Salman Rushdie on me. You know, uh-huh. and uh, I said, well, at the same time, I'm not really going to change anything unless it's factually incorrect. Okay. And well, I had to do some... Let me... I, I, I let's, have, we need to... I, I'm sorry, but I need to stop you there because we have to take another break. But we will no leave problem. this on a cliffhanger and we will continue when we come back. <laughs> All right. I guess this is Bob Brill. We, we're now switching to his second book, which is at the other end of the spectrum than... Um, then Norman Rockwell Childhoods, uh, called El- Al-Kabul, Homegrown Terrorist. And my guest again is Bob Brill. We're t- you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, and stay tuned because we will be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? 
Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We left you on a cliffhanger here. My guest, Bob Brill, talking about his book, Al Kabul, Homegrown Terrorist. And uh, you were right, talking right about... Um, that you you were concerned you didn't want to have a uh, a Norman Rushdie. Uh, Salman Rushdie. <laughs> I mean, Salman Norman Rushdie. Very good, Salman Rushdie. <laughs> um, you didn't want to have him either. <laughs> kind of uh, kind of experience, and so that's why you uh, that was one of the reasons why you had it looked at by these Muslim scholars. Right. I, I wanted to go out and I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't misrepresenting anything. And in my research, because I did, I did do some research on this, uh, not just, you know, creating a, a story out of my head, but I did do some research. And I found out uh, one thing I didn't realize, that like Christianity and like Judaism and uh, Islam has a wide variety of different sects. You know, in, in Christianity, you have uh, Pentecostals, you have Charismatics, and you have uh, uh, liberals, and, and you have Baptists, Southern Baptists, and, and the whole nine yards. In Judaism, you have different uh, uh, sects as well. And in Islam, you have so many. And I had to, I wanted to come up with a way to differentiate the two uh, main terrorists by, so that they weren't exactly the same and that there was some conflict between them. Mm-hmm. And I made uh, one of them a Sufi Muslim, and I had to reach out to a Sufi Muslim uh, and, and find out more about and do a little more research on that particular sect, which is much more liberal than uh, the other uh, more well-known sects of, of Islam. So uh, that was one of the things I found out in talking to these uh, scholars, and the word I did get back to the scholars is, uh, you didn't write anything that would be out of, out of the ordinary. I wouldn't worry too much about it. And, um, you know, so far, so good. Nobody's come to my door with a, with a pipe bomb or anything <laughs> like that. I, I hope that never happens. But, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's a book that really talks about um, greed and a hijacked religion. I think I would probably clarify it that way. And all centered around the uh, desire to do something to honor uh, a, um, a hero of someone else's and to, to do, use terrorist means to take care of that uh, situation and to have another ultimate goal, which you find out in the book. And it's the first book I ever wrote, too, where I, I set up a timeline. And I think uh, the readers that uh, get back to me on this particular book, and one of the reasons they like about it is, like you said, it is a page turner, and it's it keeps you going, and the fact that I, the timeline at the beginning of every chapter is there, and every break is there, so you get an urgency, a sense of urgency about where, mm-hmm. where the, the story's going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so no one has, you haven't gotten any kind of criticism. I mean, I don't mean like about the literary no, no, work, I, but I, I mean... No, uh-huh. I haven't really at all, and uh, uh, the feedback actually has been very positive. Uh-huh. Uh, I've had several people like yourself say, you know, this this needs to be a movie. And, yes, uh, absolutely. I, you know, I mean, it just um, it just reads like a movie. And uh, you know, what I was thinking was, you wrote this in 2012, and mm-hmm. since that time, that's been sort of an, these these four years 
have been uh, interesting in terms of the blossoming, unfortunately, of terrorism all over the world. I mean, particularly um, in Western Europe and, well, now Turkey. I mean, you know, all over, really. And in the America, the, the attacks in... Uh, San Bernardino and 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 so the, on. We had, had the Arab Spring since then. Uh-huh. It, it has been. It has been. And you know, I when you look at a book, when you write a book about the future, you have to keep looking at it, and hopefully, you your your world that you set up hasn't um, changed to the point where oh my gosh, we're ahead of you already. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, because 25 years is uh, the year 2026, and we're still 10 years away from there. Yeah. And, you know, the, the world that I set up may be surpassed uh, by our current, current speed of technology and everything. And, you know, I tried not to get too technologically involved. I mean, obviously there's texting and, and Internet and things like that, but I didn't want to get to the point of um, predicting technology that would be out there. I chose rather to focus on the story and the relationships in the story and the the murders and the killings and, and the plot itself and the subplots mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. deal with that because, number one, I, I didn't want to write a book that would be outdated in, in 10 years and uh, have to rewrite it all over again. Um, mm-hmm. And the other reason was I, I always feel that the story and the relationships are more important than the technology and the actual action has its place. And there is a lot of action in this book. Mm -hmm. There's probably more than others I've written, maybe outside of the Westerns. And uh, I I think that, you know, the relationships uh, between people, uh, good and bad, and as those relationships develop throughout the the story, is much more important than than the action itself. One big baseball game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let me... We're kind of coming to... Play, to... And hopefully it doesn't go into overtime. <laughs> Say that again? Yeah, you have nine innings to play, and hopefully it doesn't go to extra innings. <laughs> yes, right. Um, well, let me... Um, we're kind of coming to the end of our time, but I just want to make sure that I, I provide people <laughs> with some tips in terms of how, you know... Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, we can't exactly wind back the clock, and, and there would be a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to, all kinds of advances in medicine and various other things. But, <laughs> but there are certainly, I remember when I heard, was listening to the radio, and I heard about the, uh, probably KNX, and um, that's what I have on in my car, um, and, and I heard about the, this is a few years back, I heard about the welcome wagons um, being discontinued in some cities. And that just struck me. I've never forgotten that because that was an example of a Norman Rockwell kind of thing where there would be these welcome wagons and now, now people weren't welcomed, you know, into town, just like when, when neighbors would bring cakes and so on. I mean, yes, that's still uh, individual people's uh, neighbors do that, I'm sure, from time to time, especially in smaller places. But, but it, there are just signs every day that we're losing some of this Norm, Norman Rockwellism, and I think... I think we can we can stem the tide of this to some degree. Now, I already mentioned about divorce that um, that really the people need to to rethink that and to appreciate how much of an impact that has. You know, if you look at whether it's people who are school shooters or whether it's people who are um, even people who commit suicide, like um, oh, the guy from Glee, and I'm blocking on his name right now, but who um, a few years back, I'm sure, Bob, you, you probably remember. Um, I do. A re- do you remember who I'm talking about? I, I do, I, and I, I don't understand uh, my Okay, problem. but anyhow, like, even people, you know, people who you would think had it all, um, that if you look back in their history, whether it's hurting themselves or hurting others, the, the key, the change in their life um, was when their parents got divorced. And Yes. Um, which is amazing, you know, the pattern just keeps really um, holds true. And then um, 
we, of course, you know, the more the increase in, in fatherless homes, which of course is part of, well, it's part of divorce, but it's also so many people are not getting married to begin with, and then fathers mm-hmm. disappear, um, and mothers don't make great baseball coaches um, and don't feel like they can try or don't feel like they know enough um, because they... I I think you've hit on something too, Carol, and it doesn't really matter what age the kids are. I know from personal experience, when I went through my divorce with my first wife, uh, all of my kids were adults. I mean, real adults. They were in their mid-20s or older, and it it still, you know, caused... uh, uh, a lot of friction to this day, and rightfully or wrongfully so, there's a lot of blame that goes on, uh, uh, even though the kids all growing up wonder, why did you ever get married? Why, why are you two <laughs> together, you know? And then you go through yeah. the divorce, and it's like, why, you know, now I hate your guts, you know? And yeah. Uh, yeah. so it, 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 I don't even, I don't think it's even the, the having uh, unadult children, I think even with adult children, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you Absolutely. have the same issue. Absolutely. And then uh, other things that are important are to keep family traditions. Yes, you may be tired, um, but and you don't want to lug that Christmas tree in or it's late, late to light the Hanukkah candles. These kinds of things are super important to keep as traditions, to keep some kind of routine, to keep celebrations for kids. And then, of course, also, there should be a, it should be illegal to have latchkey kids, that should there should be a ban. Uh, um, parents should that's be a tough one, yeah. should be <laughs> when I said that that is a difficult one. Yes, yes. Parents should be uh, I don't know should be fined if they if they let their kids be latchkey kids and think that that's just fine. Well, I want to make sure that we have time to give people uh, your website addresses. Um, sure. You can either go to oh, go ahead. You can do it. Okay, uh, all my books are on Amazon, and all you have to do is uh, go to Amazon and type in, in the search engine, Bob Brill, B-O-B-B-R-I-L-L, or you can go to my website, uh, and that's BobBrillBooks, plural, dot com, BobBrillBooks.com, and you can Google me, and um, I'm usually, if you type in Bob Brill in the Google search, I'm the first one that pops up, and usually one of the... I'm usually like five of the first ten or something like that. There's a few other people out there too that are much more famous than me, but for some reason I pop up and uh, number one. But yeah, Bob Real Books is, is easy to find. And really important, if, if you do buy a book on Amazon uh, from any author, not just me, take the, a couple of minutes and just write a review. If you like the book, just write a review. It really needs a lot in the Amazon rankings and where. Uh, and how people see your books and can and find them and purchase them and they like them by your other books because you know we do this because we love it but also we also like to you know get paid for our work and and uh, and I'm talking about all artists whether it's music or yeah, or yeah. Uh, artwork or or, or creative uh, writing or whatever and so if, if you want just go ahead and write a review it is so important and I, I mean I can't stress that enough. But yeah, Bob Brill Books or Amazon, either one. Yes, and let me spell that again. It's BobBrillBooks.com, B-O-B-B-R-I-L-L, books, plural, dot com. Well, thank you very much, BobBrillBooks.com. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Carol. <laughs> keep, keep, keep writing. And yes, I hope, uh, I hope we get to see Al Kabul on the... They both actually would be, uh, would be good stories um, on the big screen. So thank you so much for being on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 